This is the Tudor's Dynasty Podcast. And now, Rebecca Larson. I'm Rebecca Larson, host of the Tudor's Dynasty Podcast and owner of TudorsDynasty.com. Telling the stories of those who lived centuries before us is what I enjoy doing most. Whether it be a show on one subject or an interview with an author or historian, I'll bring you the tales of 16th century England. But before I get too far into the show, I need to do a quick shout out to my new patrons, Shauna H., Caroline, Lillian B., Donna K., Vicki H., and Stephanie W. A big shout out and thank you to all of you and to my current patrons. A full list of patrons can be found at TudorsDynastyPodcast.com. Now, if you'd like to become a patron, you can do so by going to Patreon.com, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com, slash TudorsDynasty, and click Become a Patron. For as little as $1 per month, you can show your support. Now, throughout the month of September, I am running a giveaway. So for anyone who is currently at the $5 level or becomes a $5 patron in September, you will automatically be entered into a drawing to win an amazing prize package, which includes multiple books, some are signed, a $25 gift card to TudorFair.com, and a couple of amazing Anne Boleyn necklaces. One is her famous bee necklace made with real pearls, and the other one is an Anne Boleyn cameo necklace. The winner will be drawn the first week of October. My guest on the show today is author and historian Hunter S. Jones. Hunter publishes independently as well as through traditional platforms, and recently she's revealed that she is a stage four cancer warrior. She is passionate about history of romance, science, and music, a.k.a. sex, drugs, and rock and roll. She's also an historian for past preservers casting, and when she isn't writing, talking, or tweeting about kings, queens, and rock stars, she's living the dream in Atlanta with her Scottish-born husband. She is the author of international bestseller, Phoenix Rising, a fictional story of the last hour of Anne Boleyn's life as revealed through a Tudor astrological star chart. And we'll also talk about her new book, Magic and Mystery in Tudor England, on the show today. So without further ado, let me introduce to you all author and historian Hunter S. Jones. Hunter, welcome to the show. Well, thank you, Rebecca. It's great to be here. I'm just going to jump right in and ask you the question that we're always curious about. What led you to your interest in the tutors? Oh, that's just such a great question. And it's really so funny. I'm extremely tall, very tall. And I have been since I was a child. And my seventh grade teacher, this is so hilarious. She gave me a book on Mary, Queen of Scots. As I was leaving class one day, and she said, she was as tall as you are. And um, I guess it's her way, was her way of saying, instead of acting like a supermodel, you know, you might want to read about a queen who, who lost her head. I don't know what her motivation was, but that initial introduction to Mary Queen of Scots led to a lifelong fascination with the Tudors. That's amazing for me to hear because I was also the tallest girl in my class. I'm five foot ten, and it's great to hear that there was a teacher in your life who handed you a book about an historical figure and opened your eyes to history and an amazing woman in history at that. 
That's true. And it was a female and she was a history teacher. Mm. So, um, you know, history has tended historically to be male dominated. Not that there's really anything wrong with that, but it's interesting that someone that long ago was that interested in history and saw how it could shape people's future. And she remains to this day, and I've had some great teachers. I can't diss anyone, but she made such an impact on my life. And that is what led to me eventually majoring in history in college. And long story, but I had planned on taking history and lit and getting my Ph.D., et cetera, et cetera. But I also minored in business and got a sales job. And I've never taught, so. Um, but I still love history, so it, it's helped in that way. And I've had some great trips, so you know, it's it's funny how one thing can can impact a person's entire life. And that schooling that you had and your passion for the tutors eventually led you to writing Phoenix Rising. Is that correct? I think studying the tutors, and and this is so funny. But I believe after seeing what people are capable of doing to each other, that helped me survive corporate America because I already not that people get their heads cut off, but you see how people will um, look for revenge. You see what what people are going to do to try to get ahead. You learn a lot from studying that section of history because it was so competitive and um, and cutthroat and ruthless. And it, it was just great to help me navigate the waters of corporate America. Phoenix Rising was an international bestseller. Congratulations for that. But there probably still are some people who haven't read the book. Could you explain what the premise of it is? Uh, well, thank you for asking. Um, when I started to write it, uh, first off, not being British or English, that is their history, and I wanted to approach it from a different way so it didn't seem like I was pretending to be an expert in the history of another country. So I set Phoenix Rising up um, as told from the point of view of a Southern girl who had inherited an astrological star chart from her mother and grandmother had been passed down through the years and their their ancestress had been the court astrologer to Henry VIII and she told the story of Anne Boleyn's last hour through this star chart that she had received from her ancestors and I felt like it's almost like an ensemble piece for a play even though it's historical fiction because every part of the chart takes a different person and what they were doing at that last hour of Anne but Anne still stars in it it's um, what Anne's thinking here and what Anne's thinking here doing here so I just wanted to approach it from a different way than other people had approached her story before I love that, and I'd also love to hear what your take on Jane Seymour is. Do you think she knew exactly what she was doing when it came to the king? I really do, and I know she's been painted as the good girl, um, but we have to also remember that she's the mother of a monarch, so we will probably never know exactly what is true about her, 
but she was Anne's second cousin, and at the time Anne was being executed, Jane was trying on her wedding dress. So to me, that just doesn't sound like a nice person, um, but people can think what they want. And she was chosen by the king, and they did have different mindsets back then, and kings were divine. So if Henry loved Jane, then Jane was chosen by a king who had the divine right to do that. So um, it's different than us saying, well, the cousins didn't like each other or anything, but there were a lot of things in play. But she, to me, Jane could have denied him, but she didn't. She took his advances. It appears to me that she played him. It's that simple. She figured out she could be queen just the way Anne had been queen. And she used it to her advantage. I tend to agree with you on that. And I see Jane as ambitious. I mean, she was a Seymour. I think she may have been equally as ambitious as her brothers. I mean, researching Thomas and a little bit of Edward, it seems like they may have rubbed off on her or her family in general may have rubbed off. And I agree with that. The entire family was extremely, extremely ambitious. And um, I know that Jane was supported by Sir Francis Bryan. And I think we all know what a rascal he was. <laughs> and um, he just really seems like great fun, to be honest about it. But he turned on Anne. And then Jane became his favorite. And just from what I've read from written exchanges they had, I tend to believe that Sir Francis was her godfather, and that alone would explain a lot of the ambition, and with him putting her forward the way he did, it increased his um, his favor in the, queen, in the king's sight and made Jane queen, so um, he, he works his way into the book as well, because he, he truly was a character. I love I love Francis as well. He is such a rascal, and I feature him in my book as well. He is such an interesting person as well that you can't help but want to infuse that personality into a book. Exactly, and he he was considered the great, greatest poet of his time, but only one copy of one of his poems exists. There are no pictures of him. He was supposedly so vain that after he lost his eye and had to start wearing a patch, he wouldn't allow any portraits to be painted. So we don't, no one seems to know what happened to his previous paintings. Um, the, I do know, I have read, I don't know if it's truth or not, that the, the villain in The Three Musketeers was based on Sir Francis. You know, he had the eye patch and everything. And um, he was, he was, like you said, just a rascal. And, um, he did manage to say in Henry VIII's good graces his entire life, and there's a lot to be said about that. It does say something about Francis as a man that he got removed from court during Wolsey's reign and then was accepted back not long after. It, it really does, doesn't it? It does. You know, we've been talking about the, the queen consorts of Henry VIII, so I have to ask, who was your favorite queen consort? I mean, I can assume it's Anne, but um, who was your favorite consort? I have an affinity with Anne simply because we really 
don't know anything about her. <laughs> when you think about it, Dr. Susan Bordeaux pretty well summed it up, and Eric Ives, too. She is someone we've created <laughs> because we really know so little about her from the time she was arrested on May 2nd until her execution we know more about that than any other part of her life. And that's fascinating that someone could charm a king, make him change his religion, make him change his country. And we know nothing about her. What do you think it is that attracted Henry to Anne? I think she had the polish from the European and French courts. And I also think with her dark looks that, as we would say down here, she stuck out like a sore thumb, <laughs> only in a nice way, because she was dark at a time when we can only assume most people were fair-haired, light eyes, and here's this exotic-looking female with great fashion sense. She dances. She plays musical instruments. She is adept at courtly love, and I think she caught the king's eye because she was so different than any of the other women he'd met before. And then, of course, things begin to change after Anne marries Henry and she begins to lose favor. Do you think that Henry had a hand in that or do you think that was more Cromwell's doing at the time? Well, that's really for better minds than mine. Um, there's a lot of experts that have a, a lot of opinions, really, but he did want a son so badly. And from what we do know from documented records, they did openly fight. And at that time, Jane caught his eye. And instead of Anne accepting it, like she did Madge, um, her cousin Madge, she fought Jane for some reason. And I think that probably helped king favored Jane Moore for whatever reason and um, and I have to admit even though I have an affinity to Anne I also have one to Jane because there again we really don't know anything about her and it's fascinating to try to for us to understand why these women were able to achieve what they did. I tend to see Anne as this strong woman who just dug her heels in and fought for the legitimacy of her daughter. But like you said, we don't have that evidence to show us who Anne really was. Exactly. But I do believe you touched on something there. Anne was definitely an alpha female because she could not have taken what she did for the seven years of the courtship. And then the fight she had to have there and facing what she did once she became queen, she had to be a very dominating personality and very smart. And near the end of her life, Anne was accused of witchcraft and magic. And you actually just finished writing a book, Magic and Mystery in Tudor England. And I would love to hear what your inspiration for the book was. That goes back again to the star map. In Phoenix Rising, during the research, I found out so much that we we think now about the Tudors and how ruthless they were and the pageantry and the theater. But what we don't realize is that science is not was not what it is now. Uh, 
we'll go to John D, who was considered a great man of medicine. But he calculated an astrology chart for the very time that Elizabeth I was to be coronated. Astrologers were considered scientists. If you went to a doctor, you would tell them what day you started hurting, where you hurt, and they would do an astrology chart to help heal you. And at the same time, there were wise women who we would now consider we'll call it witches for lack of a better word, but they would give you herbs or, you know, help you heal because they didn't have medicine as we know it. So that all plays into this new book, just different studies, different things I found out along the way during my research, Um, things we don't necessarily think about when we think about them, but we think they were very devout and they were, um, but they still had seers, they had wise women, they had astrologers. It's it's documented that Henry and Anne had asked their astrologers and their seers about Elizabeth I, and they predicted their child would be a great monarch, which we know is true. The only thing, it was Elizabeth I instead of a son. So um, they, they were very active in everyday life during Tudor England, and my book touches on that. There's so much research that goes into either writing fiction or nonfiction. When you write, do you prefer the research part or the writing part more? I love to research. I go down those rabbit holes and just don't come out. It's so much fun. What kind of resources do you like to use when you're doing your research? You know, like you said, you're in the U.S. like I am, so we don't have access to those national archives. And for those budding writers out there, what advice would you give them? There's a lot of information online anymore. And some things you may even have to pay, let's say, the equivalent of one pound per day to access the archives for different institutions in the UK. Uh, Some of them have opened up. There's one that is free. It's called British History Online. And all they ask is that you acknowledge them in your your sources or your credits. Um, So a lot of information is available to us anymore. It's just how you, like you said, how you present it, what you think it means. And um, for me, I turn it into fiction because I, I actually am a historian. I have an undergrad in history, but not a master's or a PhD. So I don't feel like I can really come up with a theory just having an undergrad degree in it. But it's much, much more fun to write fiction anyway. And be able to turn that information you found into whatever you want it to be. Yeah, you just fill in the blanks. So while you were doing the research and writing for Magic and Mystery, was there anything that surprised you during your research? I think the part, or I believe the part that surprised me the most was, first off, we all know how people would toss gunpowder into fires when people were being burned. That's kind of common knowledge, maybe because of movies, TV series, things like that. But one thing that I found interesting was that often they would put herbs in the wine of people that were going to be executed. If their family could get herbs 
brought in to put in their wine. And of course, they drank wine like we drink water because they considered their water bad. So that would keep people medicated, more or less. And that was something I didn't know. Is there a time in the Tudor era that you are most drawn to? I think that we'll say the pursuit of Henry for Anne is it's just such a great mystery. I wish there was some way we could find out even the dates on the letters. But my absolute love is the Elizabethan era because of the arts. We had Marlowe, we had Shakespeare, theater, fashion. Every Everything was larger than life under Elizabeth. And, of course, they defeated the Spanish Armada. It was just Armada. It was just such a... A great, it was almost like a celebration after everything they've been through from Henry VIII and the turmoil of Edward VI and then the Grey Sisters and Mary I. Once Elizabeth established her reign, everything flourished. Yeah, I, I agree with you on that. I, I always think of that time after Henry VIII with Edward VI and Mary as a darker time in Tudor history where we don't hear as much about the joyous court life and jousts and stuff like that. And when Elizabeth came to the throne, it definitely became a much happier time. It was, and I really love her ability to compromise and people call it indecision what they want, but it was really, she compromised with everything. And I think it it wasn't as intense as it had been for a long time there. You're absolutely right about that. When I have guests on the show, I always ask them the same two questions. And I've already asked you the one about the queen consort. So the next one is, if I were able to give you a time machine, when would you want to go back in time to the Tudor court? Probably 1529. I would just want to find out what was going on. Well, no, it would be before that, about 1527, to find out when Henry first started falling for Anne and why. And if I were able to give you a second stop, where would that be? That one would be 1532, right before they were married, while she was still his girlfriend, mistress, object of desire. And then I'd love to see Elizabeth's coronation. I would love to go horseback riding with her and Dudley. Oh, I love that. Nobody's ever come up with anything like that before. (laughs) Just to find out what was really going on. They really had an interesting history, didn't they? They grew up together. They had so much in common. They each had a parent that had been executed. Um, All the odds were stacked against them. And they, I, I feel like they just had a bond since childhood that even if we wouldn't call it love, they had something that lasted their entire lives. And if only they could have married. And that's a great what if. And what would have come of England had they married? Maybe that's your next book. Well, that would have to be alternative fiction. The thing, the real truth is they would have turned against her and especially him because she couldn't put any of her nobles above the others. She was smart enough to know that. And he wasn't the most popular either. So 
I think she kind of watched what her father had done and the way everything had to change every few years as he took a new wife. And she knew as a female, well, she would hand over all her power. And she was strong strong enough. She was her mother's child, even if there's really nothing documented that she said or did. Um, if you look at things Anne did, um, Elizabeth followed a lot of that. She had that same personality where she might put people off. Well, we'll take Anne and Henry. There was a lot of no's and maybes, and Elizabeth did the same thing. Sometimes saying yes gives away all your power. And if she would have married Dudley, he would have he would have been king, and it would have split her kingdom, and she would no longer have had the power. She was definitely an intelligent woman. I would agree with that. She had street smarts. That's what we would call it today. She, she, her childhood was so rough and tumble. I mean, we can't even imagine finding out, even if she didn't remember finding out, oh yeah, your father had, had your mother executed. You know, that would have to be something you would either want to know a lot about or just know nothing about at all. Then with the religious strife they had and, you know, your, your brother, dying young and then one of your cousins taking the throne and they're executed and then your half sister who wants you in prison probably dead uh, you know she had to be very savvy just to stay alive so where a lot of monarchs were pampered and we'll go back to mary queen of scots Mary was very pampered. She had been queen pretty much since the day she was born. She was in the French court. She was the polar opposite of Elizabeth. Elizabeth came up the hard way, and she wasn't about to let go of it very easily, and she never did. It has been an absolute pleasure to have you on the show today, so thank you. And out of curiosity, since you've just finished Magic and Mystery, do you have any prospects for any future projects? I'm actually working on an anthology, a gothic anthology on Anne Boleyn that will be released next May. And uh, there's some great authors that will be in the book. We're all doing short stories. I've, um, I've been fighting stage four cancer for over a year now and these short stories and things have really helped me for I've had to have so many surgeries and anesthesia um, just doing something short helps me get over that fog and I'm surprised at the support I've received from from the writing community and the people that have said yes I want to be part of this anthology and we're looking at the the Wheel of Life, which was very prominent, again, during the Tudors. They looked at life as being what we'll call a Wheel of Fortune. You rise, you're there, and you start to fall. And no one personifies that more than Anne Boleyn. So we're going to do an anthology for next year. And um, that that's the one I'm really, really excited about because we've got some true talent working on that one. That sounds so exciting. So how can people support you on social media? Um, I am all over Twitter. I have a Facebook page. I'm on Goodreads, Pinterest. I'm not that active on Pinterest, but I've got some really cute boards if anybody's into that. Um, Oh, my goodness. Instagram. Instagram. 
I don't know, sometimes I'll go through a phase and I post every day and then sometimes it's like, oh yeah, I need to do something. But um, I'm out there. They can find me on whatever their favorite platform is. And I'll be sure to share all the links to your social media and your books in the show notes. Again, Hunter, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you so much, Rebecca. And that concludes this episode of the Tudor's Dynasty podcast. Thank you so much for joining me today. You can find my show notes from this episode and how to become a patron at TudorsDynastyPodcast.com. Don't want to miss an episode? Be sure to subscribe at Apple Podcasts, Patreon, Podbean, or anywhere you can find podcasts. Intro and outro music called Folk Round by Kevin McLeod in Competech.com. Creative Commons license via FilmMusic.io. Thanks for checking out the Tudor's Dynasty podcast. Read more. Read more on the blog at TudorsDynasty.com. Follow Tudor's Dynasty on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Subscribe to Tudor's Dynasty on iTunes. Thanks for listening.